Welcome to Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. And we've got a great show for you on Poets and Writers today, and this is Henry McCarthy, and I have one of my favorite poets on today, and he's from around these parts, Edison Jennings. Edison, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure having you, and I first met you, I think, at Kathy's Wine Shop, and we used to have some really good conversations there. So as we like to ask around the mountains here and around the valleys, where are you from, Edison Jennings? Uh, I'll keep this as brief as I can. Uh, My father was in the Navy as a career uh, fighter pilot, and I was born in Panama and left there before I could speak, and then I traveled all over the East Coast and a bit overseas. So... I probably have spent more time in southwest Virginia than any place else. Well, you have a how did you happen to come to southwest Virginia? Well, uh, my mother lived in Abingdon, and uh, I met an uh, Emory and Henry student, uh, and her name was Julie Cox. Her father was a big shot American lit critic, and I kind of, you know, we had a thing going on, and I married her. All right, so you wound up here, and you definitely have had some interesting travels. And talk a little bit about your—now, I know some of these things about you because we've had conversations about it. Talk a little bit about your Navy experience and, you know, where you went to undergraduate school. I know you went to Warren Wilson, which has a fine writing program, but talk a little bit about that aspect of your life. Uh, Okay, I spent uh, 13 years— of my life in the Navy, and uh, I worked as a, I was enlisted air crew, and I flew around in airplanes looking for Russian sl- submarines. That's what I did in the Navy. That lasted for 13 years. And um, while I was in the Navy, I was able to um, get together, scratch together a uh, bachelor's degree uh, in English literature uh, just by taking courses here and courses there, and Dante's and, and CLEP courses and GREs. That's how I did it. So you tested out, so to speak, on your undergraduate work. Pretty much, yeah. I tested out on my undergraduate And so you decided to leave the Navy after 13 years. Was that a career move? You just decided you'd had enough? That's Sometimes they stay 20 years, you know. Uh, yeah, um, I left because, uh, one, the Russians, uh, uh, Soviet at that time, Soviet Navy had basically come apart. So uh, they had no, not too much need for people that knew a whole lot about their submarines and could chase them. So they wanted to get us out of the way, you know. Don't, why are we paying you if you're not going to do anything? So um, there was that, and there was a um, quick uh, exit bonus. They said, if you leave now, we'll give you... You know, a bonus. No, you want not going to get any retirement. We'll give you some cash on the way out. So that's what I did. Well, Edison, you have a. You also taught uh, college and so on. That was around here, correct? Down at VI. Is that- yes, I. I um, uh, shortly after I got out of the Navy, I started teaching as an adjunct in the adult studies program at Virginia Intermont College, and I stayed there for almost sixteen years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, well, you have that background, and I'm going to throw this at you. And we're talking with Edison Jennings today on the show on Poets and Writers, and this is Henry McCarthy, and he is truly a really fine poet and a fine person, has so many interesting experiences. And we're going to get to your poetry here in just a few minutes, but uh, 
talk a little bit about your family. So you have uh, you had three children, correct? And yes, I had three children, uh, two boys and a girl, and I have two grandchildren, both girls. All right, and it, my goodness gracious. All right, now we're going to talk about one thing I'm going to ask you about. Uh, who are some of your favorite writers? How about Cormac McCarthy? Oh, I, uh, I remember the first time I read Cormac McCarthy. I was in Augusta, Georgia, and I was talking to a professor at the University of Augusta, and I was asking, well, who do you like? And he said, you've got to read Cormac McCarthy. And I said, who's Cormac McCarthy? And he had just uh, published All the Pretty Horses, so I picked that novel up and I couldn't put it down, and then I just devoured everything. I you know, so yes, he's um, he's he's probably in my my judgment our best living novelist, and I think he ranks up there with Twain and Melville and those guys. Well, I think I told you this one time when we were talking about. I ran in. I was out to University of Oregon, walking lonely, walking down a side street there, and I definitely went in a little bookstore, and there was a Cormac McCarthy Orchard Keeper. And I read it, and I thought, this guy's back where I'm from, you know? And, of course, he went to UT and then dropped out and lived in a barn and so forth. One of the – one of the, I'm not really into Blood Meridian, but I remember one day you explained that to me. So talk a little bit about Blood Meridian, one of his novels. Uh, Blood Meridian uh, is, believe it or not, is a kind of uh, re, uh, a historical novel, very loosely. There was um, – a group of Texas mercenaries, cowboys really, actually from all over the place, and actually and some Native Americans. And at that time, shortly after the Civil War, people were offering, giving you money, bounty for uh, Native American scalps. It, it's, it's really horrible. So the group of these men went down south into Mexico and uh, basically started killing Native Americans. And was led by a man named Judge Holden, who really existed. This is uh, it's known the the troop of soldiers known as the Gaston Party, and um, he he was he he was he, he's an amazing character. He's is amazing as Ahab, and um, so would you say some folks think that book is too violent? What's your answer to that? It is extremely violent. One of the things that McCarthy does is he is. He, uh, he, he, his books are violent, but they are so simultaneously, they're so beautifully written. His prose is so good that you just did a reading, reading it, I'm slack-jawed at, at the way the story develops, just the, the propulsion behind it. And the ironic beauty of it when you're reading about something so horrible, and yet it's some of the most beautiful prose I've ever read in my life. My goodness. Well, thank you, Edison, Jennis, Edison Jennings, for giving us a little insight into Cormac McCarthy. Of course, I'm a little partial because his folks come out of County Cork or Cary. I've traced the heritage and wondered how he got down to Tennessee, but his dad was a TVA lawyer, Edison, and he was out of Boston. He was actually up near, uh, you say, Providence College up there, I think it mm-hmm. is, in Rhode Island. And had some relatives up that way, so I always thought it was interesting, the last name. And when I was growing up in the South, there were not very many McCarthy's. Yeah. That's been a while back. So that name intrigues me, and uh, he took the name Cormac from uh, one of the kings in Ireland who were um, – well, anyway, that's a I'm deviation here on the show uh, today. And one last thing about him. He sits on a brain trust 
out in California, which includes physicists, mathematicians, poli- uh, political scientists, sociologists, I mean, just a, a real high IQ brain trust. And Cormac McCarthy is one of, one of, one of, the, um, one of them. I, I was just stunned. Well, that, that uh, adds more to the story there, and his writing is certainly, some people compare him to uh, Faulkner, but anyway, we want to, I, I loved all the pretty horses and also loved the movie, by the way. Edison Jennings, now let's talk about your poetry. I know your books, and we have, uh, I've read uh, some of your poetry, and you've, uh, Reckoning was one of your books that I know you have some poems I like in, and then you have one I read a review of, Let's uh, let's talk about your latest book, okay? And then we'll get into some other stuff. All right. Uh, my latest uh, book is called Intentional Fallacies, uh, and it's uh, it's a full length collection. It's about sixty four pages, and it is a compilation of, of poems I've written over the years, and just tried to put in some kind of some kind of order. It's hard when you're a lyric poet because there's really not much plot line unless you're writing on one specific subject or one specific event. All right, the title. Where did you get the title? Intentional fallacies is a term <laughs> that's used in literary criticism from the modernist movement all the way up to the postmodernist movement. And I've always thought it was a f- foolish notion. It's the idea that if you read a novel and you think you know what the author's intent is, or you think the, you know what the novel is really about, you have committed an intentional fallacy. You have said, I, you, you're implying that you know what the author intended. And, and in modernists, uh, and particularly postmodernists, they would say, well, you don't. So, you know, you... All right, well, we'll go with that here on Poets and Writers today. That's getting a little heavy here for us, Edison Jennings, but that helps us. Edison has a great insight. He is actually a brilliant writer, but he also has some great, what I'm going to say, down-home poems. But Edison, read some poetry to us today on Poets and Writers. Oh, all right, I sure will. Um, I mainly write lyric poems. But I'm going to read this one, um, which, is a, which is a narrative poem. I think narrative poems work better at reading because they tend to have a little bit of a plot line instead of, you know, 14 lines of how much I love you, why did you treat me so bad poems. Well, let's go with the Klansman. An uncle of mine was in the Klan, but I was never told his name because the Klan was trashy, according to my grandmama and a clutch of aunts and nieces who play-acted chatelaines and spent their leisure reading glossy magazines like Vogue, lunching at the uh, garden club with a glass or two of sherry, and giving of their time and treasure to worthy Christian charities. But I had my suspicion, and uncle I suspected was a vicious man, especially so when drunk. Though the distaff tried to spare me family tales of shameful late-night escapades, because they thought me sensitive. But my granddad had the notion to get me laid, thereby curing that affliction. I was 12. Well, go shoot dove, he said, and afterwards, well, he knew someone young and pretty, and winking cupped his hands on his chest, and I winked back, dimly knowing what he meant, while he slipped me $30. The next day I faked sick and kept the cash along with my virginity. And so that Georgia summer with my mother's family passed while I spent the afternoons playing in the shade of trees or ensconced in that shadowed house 
reading Uncle Teddy's trashy mags like Argosy and Four Men Only. He had a taste for lurid stories, but no trashy clansman he, just an alcoholic who found Jesus on the wagon and stayed there 15 years until calm as a saint, he shot himself in his basement at 3 a.m. where he kept my granddad's taxidermied kills, skins, heads, horns, and tusks, a suburban charnel of the wild splattered with blood and brains. And how did all that come about? Did he wake up in the dark thinking, oh hell, what's the point? And with no answer imminent, go downstairs slow and quiet so as not to wake his wife, to get his fancy 45 plated chrome ivory grips, and bang, his wife wakes like a corpse in Revelation. His wife, who would have joined the clan if she'd had a chance but didn't because, as she explained, her husband was a pussy, a mousy little pussy. And when I asked, why the clan? Why not the D.A.R.? She said, it's that horrid man, James Brown. He lived close by. And all his friends, they need to leave. Then, to, as if to make us right as pie on all accounts, she said, please, you must have these. And handed me a, hip, and handed me a hippo-footed humidor, a scarab trapped in amber, a lapis Buddha, and my uncle's fancy gun, packed with tissue in a box, my name in Sharpie on the top. But now they're dead, all of them. With my quiet cousin, gay and decent, docent of stories, last to go, I sowed his ashes on a shadowed southern green, a gem among the rubble, only son of the uncle I thought might be the clansman, and rightly so, it seems, because beneath the bed he died in, was a suitcase filled with pornographic photos, letters, and a diary, and stuffed inside a sack, a hooded robe, so frail it tore when handled, redolent as death, blazoned with a cross, a burning inches from the heart. My goodness gracious here. I think Cormac McCarthy would like that poem now. <laughs> I have to ask this. You mentioned Georgia, and you mentioned some places and so on. Um, is that somewhat out of your own personal experiences i'm uh, sure yeah, part of it is yes yeah, sir it is yeah um yeah uh my grandfather uh lived in georgia and he um uh, among other things he did he was a big game hunter okay and so you would go visit him in the summertime visit uh, and the grandmother too she was quite uh, formidable shall we say <laughs> uh yeah i um I uh, visited them from time to time. My father, as I mentioned before, was in the Navy, and he was frequently at sea, and I'd get dumped off with, with, for them to take care of poor people. But did you, your mother, did you have brothers and sisters too as well? I, I had an older sister, and my mother would follow my father on taking air, fly, uh, air flights, I mean, uh, you know, commercial flights over to Europe and stuff at what, when he was on um, when he was at sea so they could meet at certain ports and get together. So military career ran in your family, so to speak, then. Uh, big time. Big time. And so uh, you mentioned that. and you, But you grew up in northern Virginia, right? Uh, I mean, I, basically. Uh, I spent a lot of time in northern Virginia, um, and my sister lives in McLean. I also spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. Uh, when my dad was at the Pentagon, and um, and then I moved to uh, my mother divorced my father and moved to Southwest Virginia with a man named Fra Frank Motley. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned tracking the Soviets and submarines and so on. 
Talk a little bit about your work, if it's not too confidential here on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. I'll make this as uh, easy as, as I can, fast as I can, too. Submarines don't want to be detected. That's why they sail underwater. Uh, <laughs> and one of the ways they can be detected is they make noise. Uh, and um, we can track them. Sometimes if we have sauna buoys, which are basically microphones with a little transmitter on the top hanging down several hundred feet in the ocean, we can hear them go by. And, and out of that, using uh, trigonometry, we can position them and figure out their speed and track them and know where they're going. Well, I have to ask this question. Where were you when you were listening to submarines, Soviet submarines? I mean, you weren't like up in a tower in the water. Or no, something. I was in an airplane, 300, oh. 300 feet off the ocean. Okay, <laughs> and you were actually using computers or what? Yes, very, very primitive computers by today's standards. Mm -hmm. But yes, we used computers and headphones. And um, well, that's very interesting, Edison Jennings, uh, poet, former. My goodness gracious, submarine tracker and so forth. I didn't know that about you, but uh, we definitely know you around these parts, and we know your poetry from your readings all over southwest Virginia, and is, and you're also nationally and internationally known. Well, maybe turn into a... I know you write some love poems and love lost and so on. Maybe we shift into a little bit of love today. That, that was a parable poem. Uh, okay. Uh, but not exactly the love doctor, but I, I'll... Um I'll read some. Well, I guess we're talking about temporary love. Yeah, know. temporary <laughs> love. This is, um, uh, there's one that I, a lot of people indicate that they enjoy. All right. Um, Edison shifting through his poems, poems which is right. something that yeah. I tend to do when I'm reading poems. And we, uh, so. Yeah, we, uh, well, I'm just going to babble until I find what page it is okay. on. Um, Go right ahead. Just grab on here. Edison right Jennings. All right. I'll read this one. This is a love poem in a way. This is called Rocket Girl. Rocket Girl. Yeah. Um, taken sort of from the um, song uh, uh, Rocket Man. Absolutely. Rocket Girl. Cindy Shepard, I remember. Gold hair, brown eyes, soft voice and a smell like toast and apples, what I ate each morning, the classroom suite with Cindy, where one day, when asked our father's occupations, Cindy said a spaceman and suffered mocking from her groundling classmates. But I stayed quiet, and on the bus that circumsailed our orbit, I told her I believed her because I couldn't in much else. Years later, Commander Shepard rode a redstone into space, and my own trajectory carried me to distant schools, and Cindy became Connie, Carolyn, and Sheila, became the smell of toast and apples my daughter eats for breakfast, a moon that wanders wider every year, my gravity diminished, my orbit more elliptic, the sun's grip growing weaker, stars more than ever kin. As I drift closer, devoted spaceman, to worlds where trees bear golden fruit, plucked by golden sisters. All right. We'll call that a love poem by Edison Jennings here on Poets and Writers today. I remember we talked about this maybe 
some time ago about a poem that you had about you had fixed dinner and you were waiting on a love to come. Uh, Can, yeah. Do you recall that poem? I, I'll, I'll get it. Just, I just have it. All right. Edison Jennings is finding a poem about uh, fixing dinner. Uh, I guess this was here in southwest Virginia. Uh, so. He's going to have to. Oh, Lord. Why can't I find this? I'll read this one. Okay, and then you can <laughs> summarize the other one. Go for 448. Yeah. Um, this one uh, is, uh, let's see, it was written around about the same time. You can draw a conclusion. Oh, here's the one you mentioned. Okay, here Ready? it is. It's called What to Do with Leftovers. When she doesn't show, toss out the bread for birds, freeze the shrimp in Tupperware, and forget the words. All that awful sweet talk you practiced while you cooked, the boyish innuendos and just how good she looked. Plug the cork back in the wine. The fresh whipped cream won't last. What was meant to be a feast has now become a fast. Take the pills the doctor gave and try to get some sleep. What you could, what you could not save was never yours to keep. Well, you know, that's interesting. I thought of uh, the term that's used sometimes in the statement that, uh, you know, men vacillate between trying to please and anger. And, and I thought that was so interesting. You mentioned your boyish intent and so forth. And, uh, try, yeah, that's so, that's very, very good. All right, Edison Jennings, as we move along here today, our great uh, producers watching the clock here on Poets and Writers, we go for 28 minutes, 27, then we, use, we get a song in it to last. Let's get one more poem in here, Edison Jennings, of yours today. Okay, um... This poem is pretty short. It's, uh, it's sort of in a similar vein. It's called Bouquet. When you're away, I sleep on your side of the bed and smell the sheets where the weave is riches with your scent, bath damp hair, armpits, feet, the alchemic reminders of your sex. Call me, won't you? Call me what you will. Pillow sniffer, linen lecture, truffle-nosing swine, or better yet, a drowsy drunk who smells the empty bottle's cork to tease the tongue and taste the flower again. Uh, taste again the flower in the wine. All right, very very beautiful here on poets and writers. Now I have a going to say you're quite knowledgeable about books, so I'm not going to let you get away from me today with throwing out a couple of more. We talked about Cormac McCarthy. Couple more, I want a couple more of your favorite uh, poets. Oh, uh, uh, well, gonna... Do you want me to stick with uh, uh, t poets from Virginia? Hey, or, it's whatever uh, you want to stick with. And while we're asking that, I want to ask you about Robert Frost. What do you think of Robert Frost? Uh, I think Robert Frost is arguably uh, one of the uh, probably arguably the best core, uh, poet in, in in American literary tradition. Now, others would say, you know, bring up uh, Whitman, of course, and and Emily Dickinson, but uh, so I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll say from in the twentieth century, he's he's one of two or three people that I think would be considered. The and best one poem. of your favorite poems of his is Birch's, correct? Yes, I love Birch's. And what do you like about that poem? Well, uh, it's written in blank verse, um, yet uh, it, it's it's very sonorous. Uh, the the figuration the, uh, that he uses, metaphors, et cetera, et cetera, are absolutely shocking and, and absolutely right on point. And uh, 
And the su- subject matter is pretty good too, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. It's yeah. about a boy who, cli- who, who, a country boy who climbs up on Berks, top of Berkshire's, uh, and this, this one is in the wintertime, and would grab onto the top and then jump off. And the, the Berks would bend and put him back down easy on the ground. Uh, and he just, in the, the, the poem is about how much he loved to do this. And the one line, I guess, is um, he talks about going to heaven. He said, I wish that I could just go all the way up to heaven and then come back down to earth, which is the best place for love. Beautiful, Edison Jennings. I remember you reading that poem one time at VI there when I was down there visiting and listening to you and several people read poetry. So that's why I ask you that. And I love also when he mentions about Far From Town and baseball and that poem. As we move along, I want to get one more poem out of you, and then we're, we're going to have to wrap it up today. Edison Jennings. Okay. Um, I'll read a poem that some people uh, like or good enough to like, and it's pretty short. It's called A Letter to Greta, and the Greta in this instance is Greta Garbo, uh, the movie star. Okay, uh, and it's... Greta uh, Garbo, I love it. Uh, and it has an epigraph that says, So pitying and yet so dis- di- uh, distant, by Cecil, Be- Cecil Beaton said that. Among my father's posthumous flotsam, recently washed up in my house, I found a letter postmarked 1925 addressed Miss G. Garbo, Hollywood Cali, private, stamped return to sender, sealed unread, and stored for 60 years inside its author's desk. Held alight, the envelope revealed a trace of earnest cursive written to a star flickered on a million screens. I set a kettle on the stove to steam the letter open and explicate the heart of this dead man, once vestal boy, husband to three wives, one widow, one dead, one faithless, also dead, fighter pilot with cleft chin and good teeth whose friends had died from too much war or too much booze, who, if asked what happens when you die, would sip his drink and say, you rot. When the envelope unglued, I found a time-fogged photo of a contraposto skinny boy in running, sh- running shorts and jerseys, holding up a trophy cup, most likely won at some junior track event before the age of endless wars. And I slipped the photo and never read forever virgin letter back inside its envelope, taped it shut, and late that night burned it all beneath the stars as offerings to a heaven of Greta's. Okay. Another beautiful poem, insightful poem by Edison Jennings here on Poets and Writers today. Edison, thank you so much for being on Poets and Writers. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Edison Jennings.
Just know it is. You can't. 